IBN is proud to bring you the following podcast. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm T.J. O'Hara, the principal political analyst for IBN, the Independent Voter News. Our goal on Deconstructed is to break down important political issues with outstanding guests, so you can develop your own more informed opinion. My guest today is Sean Griffiths, national editor of the Independent Voter News. Mr. Griffiths has been with the Independent Voter News since 2012. Beyond his responsibilities as IBM's national editor, he also is an election reform expert and hosts his own show, Toppling the Duopoly, that features exclusive interviews of election reform leaders from across the nation. Today, Turnabout is fair play as I get to host him and badger him with questions on a whole host of political issues. Welcome to Deconstructed, Sean. No, thanks for having me, TJ. Let's talk about your show, Toppling the Duopoly. Now, is that some sort of anarchist movement against the establishment that's <laughs> trying to organize an impromptu insurrection of some kind and thinking that I'll post bail for you? No, no. So I can see how some people might look at the title and think that it's anti-party or anti-government or something. It's not. It's to raise awareness of the reality that we have a political structure that is designed solely to benefit two private political organizations, and that's the Republican Democratic parties. And we've gotten to a point where competition doesn't exist, not real competition. And we can call it a duopoly because, you know, in any industry, if there's a monopoly or a duopoly, it's because that company has such an iron grip on that industry that competition cannot emerge to challenge it. And that is exactly what we have in our political industry. We have two political parties that control all levers of government, from how elections are administered to the rules on campaign finance to just every facet to everything you think about in terms of debates, in terms of resources for elections and how those resources are spent. It's all controlled by members who are loyal to their political party. So that's what we talk about on Toppling the Duopoly is that very thing, just the nuances of what it means to have a duopolistic political system, but also the reforms out there that are designed to change the incentive structure of this political industry of ours toward being competitive for people's votes, to accountability, to transparency, to better representation. Give me a few examples of who you've had on the show recently and what you've been discussing. Oh, yeah. So one of my more recent episodes, I had Andrew Yang, the former Democratic presidential candidate, on, and we discussed his departure from the Democratic Party and his uh, creation of the Ford Party, which is one of the few political parties in the country that specifically focuses on reform. So they support things like ranked choice voting and open primaries and term limits and just looking at different ways to change that incentive structure that I, I was just talking about earlier to create a, a more accountable and better representative system for all voters, not just members of the two major parties. I also had on a founder of the Veterans for Political Innovation. It's a new group. And what's interesting about this is it's really the first major veterans group that we've gotten in the political reform space. And so they have uh, an association with the Institute for Political Innovation, which was founded by Catherine Gell, who wrote a very groundbreaking report along with Michael Porter, who is a Harvard Business School professor, talking about just what I've been talking about already. 
how the incentive structures within our political system play into eliminating competition while bolstering two private political parties. So they're looking for specific innovations that will change that incentive structure, like a final five voting system, which would be a nonpartisan open primary where the top five vote getters, regardless of party affiliation, move on to the general election and then in the general election use ranked choice voting. So these are the type of guests I've had. I, we, I mean, I've had guests from people across the political spectrum, organizations from across the political spectrum. We talked about open primary reform, voting method reform, campaign finance reform, gerrymandering reform, you know, basically try to hit all of these components because there are really a myriad of problems with the way that our political system is currently structured in the United States. Well, you brought up voting rights, and obviously there's been a lot of angst about Voting Rights Act that never made it to the Senate floor for a vote. And unfortunately, there's been very little informative coverage about what was included in the bill and whether it was necessary to supplement the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? What have you learned from your guests and from your shows and also some of the articles that you've written on voting rights? And what's your position relative to what's transpiring in D.C.? So I think the way that we look at voting rights is it's interesting because on the, the way that we focus on voting rights on my show and in the work that I've done covering the reform space is the enfranchisement of all voters, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of political affiliation, making sure that every vote is equal. And so when you talk to nonpartisan reform advocates, that's really their goal is to make a level playing which every vote can truly be counted as equal. Now, I know there were a few laws that were proposed in Congress to implement things like making it easier to you know, register to vote, implementing automatic voter registration for federal elections, as well as requiring certain amount of time for early voting and provisions that take on partisan gerrymandering, as well as a whole host of things. I mean, the bills that have come up have been very comprehensive and been kind of a, a large scale approach to try to just tackle everything at once. I think there are certain things within the bills that are great, including expanding access to the ballot and to voter registration. I think the problem that these bills would obviously run into is the constitutional challenge of a states being able to dictate their own elections. And so I think where the current reform movement differs from that is that it does really take a more state-by-state -state approach because a lot of reformers understand that that's where the fight has to be in order to make significant changes at the local and state levels. And then when you have a significant amount of support across the country in individual states, then you can see what you can actually do at the federal level to make more lasting changes at the top. If you were going to lay a groundwork for a Voting Rights Act, and I understand and respect the fact that you obviously put an emphasis on the 10th Amendment, which is nice to hear for a change. But <laughs> if you were trying to lay out a template, how would you address, for example, the voter ID issue? Mm -hmm. So voter ID is interesting because obviously in Congress, you have a lot of Republicans who have been for it and Democrats who have 
been against it, or at least that's always been the perception. And when you look at voter ID itself, at least from the studies that I've seen and from, say, Harvard and some other higher academia groups, voter ID itself doesn't solve any problems, but also doesn't create any problems overall. So I think if we were to lay the groundwork for something like voter ID, I think there are sensible solutions that a lot of people can agree on. In fact, in the early 2000s, there was the, you may be familiar with the Carter Baker Commission, in which they had a bipartisan commission of Republicans and Democrats, and they came up with a solution to voter ID to have it tied to the Real ID Act. So you would have this universal ID that was accessible to everybody, that everybody would get, and that the states would help people acquire. And if they are people in, you know, in low-income areas, then, then the states can provide the resources or just mail them the ID that they need to vote. And there were only three nay votes in the commission for that. So if the commission was evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats, that means even most Democrats supported it and all Republicans probably supported it. So I think if I were going to go into lay the groundwork for something like voter ID, I would first start selling that into the states and try to get that worked up into the national level so that people have a better understanding of how voter ID can work at a federal level and that it doesn't have to be state by state. Let's talk about early voting. I know in the last presidential election, North Carolina was allowed to cast votes three months in advance, and a lot transpires within three months. I mean, in the environment that we're in today, you could have candidates being incarcerated for all we know within a three-month period of time. What's too early, if anything? <laughs> um, wow, that's, that's a good question. I think you're right. I think three months might be really early especially when you think of things like a primary, because three months ahead of that, the the same candidates may not even be in that primary anymore by the time your election comes up, uh, particularly in a presidential election, because of how everything moves and how when people will just drop out when they get to a certain point in the primary season where they know they just can't win or when they see the opportunity to help another candidate out by removing themselves from the field. So... I would probably say two months might be fine. You know, I, I'm trying to think of of something that would give people plenty of time to actually take part in the early voting process. But yeah, I can definitely agree that there is a certain point where it might be too much. I can certainly see that. Well, Sean, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about politics when we come back. The National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers is the only association of nonpartisan election reform leaders, organizations, and industry professionals dedicated to increasing electoral competition and voter choice. Learn more at nonpartisanreformers.org. Welcome back. My guest today is Sean Griffiths, national editor of IVN and the host of Toppling the Duopoly. Sean, there's a lot of discussion over the presidential debates and what direction that's going to go. Can you speak to that issue for us, please? Yeah, of course. So most recently, there was an article in the New York Times about how the RNC plans on voting on a rule in February this month that would require any candidate wanting to run for the presidential nomination of the Republican Party to sign a pledge that they would not take part in any debates that are hosted by the Commission on Presidential Debates. 
Now, for those who are not familiar with the history of the commission, the commission was established in 1987 ahead of the 1988 presidential election. And it was a collaboration between the Republican and Democratic parties in which they say it was established as a result of a research that found that how important presidential debates were to the presidential elections. But at that point, there was a group that was sponsoring presidential debates. It was the League of Women Voters. In fact, they had sponsored the debates from 1976 to 1984 and were up until the 1988 presidential election co-sponsors along with the Commission on Presidential Debates. However, during the formation of this commission, the League was vehemently opposed to it. They even penned editorials saying that it would perpetuate a fraud on the American people. And ultimately, that's what led them to pull their sponsorship. And since 1988, the commission has sponsored all presidential debates. Now, in this time, there has only been one instance that was in 1992 with Ross Perot, in which a candidate outside the Republican and Democratic parties has taken part. And the debates themselves are largely the subject of mockery these days. The questions are softball at best, and oftentimes they're gotcha to one candidate or the other. And it seems like a lot of people don't really take the debates as seriously as I think they would like to. I think people would like to watch debates where they feel like they're being informed about not only the candidates, but the issues that are at the forefront of that election. And so the League of Women Voters essentially predicted correctly what the debate commission would become. And now there have been lawsuits against the debate commission to try to change how it operates and how debates operate. Most notably, uh, Peter Ackerman and Level the Playing Field filed a lawsuit against the debate commission, challenging first the 15% rule they have, because they have three rules. You have to be a qualified candidate to run for president. You have to be on the ballot in enough states to mathematically to get an electoral victory. And you have to poll at 15%, at least 15% and five handpicked polls by the commission. And the Level Playing Field challenged this because while that does not sound like a high bar to hit for an independent or third-party candidate, it is exceptionally high because these candidates aren't getting coverage in the media. You know, their name recognition is already very low as it is. If they want to boost their name recognition, they have to spend tens, even hundreds of millions of dollars maybe to actually get the same level of coverage that the Republican and Democratic candidates get for free by the media. So they challenged it on that rule, but also just the idea that the commission calls itself nonpartisan and it takes advantage of nonpartisan tax breaks because, again, it was established as a bipartisan commission. It was a collaboration between the two major parties and members of that commission's board give to the candidates. They, they give money during presidential campaigns to you know one candidate or the other. So there's definitely a conflict of interest in that. So that kind of takes a, a very simple look at what is really a, a long history in the problem with this debate. But I think what the RNC is doing right now may help us shift the way that we look at presidential debates going forward. It's interesting. I don't know if you recall, a few years ago, I had Larry Lessig on the Deconstructed Show, as you are today. 
And Larry had tried to run in the Democratic primary. He's a well-known progressive Harvard professor, a very literate and very strong person in the reform movements. And they played the game in the primary without using the presidential election committee because obviously it was a primary season. But the Democratic Party actually changed the poll structure because Larry mm -hmm. was polling sufficient to be included in the debate. And they didn't want him getting any visibility, so they changed it to the last minute, and that's why he dropped out. So mm -hmm. it, it even predates the actual presidential debates. It gets back to the primaries, and people don't recognize how the parties try and manipulate it to use your term. Well, no, I think that's an important point that you raised because, yeah, in the primaries, the parties have a lot of control over how the debates are formatted, who gets in them because it's largely seen as a party activity. It's the primary, so it's largely seen as their activity. What the RNC is trying to do is kind of something not completely the same, but the RNC wants more negotiating power in how these debates take place. And it's gotten to a point where if they don't get that, then the risk is we won't have presidential debates at all. We'll go back to a time where there were not presidential debates, because a lot of people may not know this, that after the first televised presidential debate between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, there weren't a lot of debates after that because the campaigns wanted a lot more control than what the sponsors were going to give them. And I feel like with what the RNC is doing now in terms of wanting to give the parties a little bit more control over the general election debates, the, the danger is that we just may go back to a time where we don't have debates at all. You bring up an interesting point. That first debate, Nixon versus Kennedy, shows the importance of video over audio because the summations of those debates were radically different whether someone listened to them on radio, in which case the predominant reasoning was that Nixon had convincingly won that debate, and yet on television... He was sweating profusely and so forth, and right. the camera was picking that up. And right. John Kennedy was a handsome man and a younger fellow and so forth. <laughs> and so he was perceived as having destroyed Nixon in that debate. So the, just the difference in media has a, an impact that most of us don't really follow. Right. Sean, we're going to take a quick break and talk more about politics when we come back. Looking for an insider's perspective? Join IVN's principal political analyst, Dr. T.J. O'Hara, as he deconstructs America's most pressing issues with notable guests from across the political spectrum. Subscribe to Deconstructed for fresh perspectives and no partisan spin. Welcome back. My guest today is Sean Griffiths, host of Toppling the Duopoly and the national editor of IVN. Sean, we were talking about the presidential debates. Let's move past that. Let's say that the candidates are now fully engaged and so forth, and it comes down to that last minute, and we have the Electoral College. And there's always great controversy surrounding the Electoral College. What have you discussed with people on your show about the Electoral College, and what is your position? How do we resolve this issue? Well, one of the more recent things that I didn't discuss on my show but I wrote about was a proposed reform to the Electoral College Act of 1887. And for listeners who are not familiar with that, that is basically the law that governs the entire electoral count process. It's the reason why electors meet when they do. It stipulates 
the time frames in which states have to get their final vote counts and their elector makeup in for the electors to meet. And so the law itself was the response to a very controversial 1876 presidential election in which some states, three states in particular, Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana, sent in multiple results to Congress, which made everything just a field day. And so the race was between Democrat Samuel Tilden and Republican Rutherford E. Hayes. So ultimately, because of the controversy that happened with that, Congress had to create an ad hoc commission to essentially decide the election, and they gave it to Hayes. And then 12 years later, Congress passed this Electoral Count Act to put in rules for Congress to help handle these type of electoral disputes, because there were no rules at the time to properly handle a situation like that in which you would have disputed electoral results. And so fast forward to the present time. And in 2020, we had the presidential election. There was a lot of controversy at the end of it. A lot of people trying to dispute the election results. And, and then in 2021, on January 6th, we had the riots at the Capitol over the electoral count and the all these suggestions that maybe Mike Pence could have sent the results back to the states and, and things like that. So there are there's support on both the Republican and Democratic sides to reform the current law to help clarify some things, including the vice president's role in this process and how we should handle electoral disputes. Because there's some people who think that challenging the electoral count or electoral votes in the state is way too easy. By having one person from each chamber raise objection to it, that that's just too easy of a threshold to just slow down the process of certifying a presidential election. There are those who will argue that we should just have a pure democracy as opposed to electoral college. What are your feelings about that? You know, I hear the side of the pure democracy, the national popular vote side, and also the side of the people who want to keep the status quo uh, and just keep the electoral college as it is. Either way, you're getting, you're giving disproportionate power to something in a pure popular vote. You're getting disproportionate power to urban settings while minimizing the voice of people who live in rural areas in the country. When you have the purely the electoral college as it is, you're actually giving an outsized voice to rural areas when one of the more populous areas are urban cities or, or large cities. So for me, I feel like there is a way that we can reform the electoral college that keeps it, but also makes it to where that it best represents everybody. And that's a proportional allocation system where you assign the number of electors to a candidate in proportion to the vote that they get. So if they get 55% of the vote in the state, they get 55% of the electors and the other candidate gets uh, you know, the remaining 45%. I think for me, it seems like a, a logical middle ground for those who want to see reform to the current system and those that want to keep it as it is. Well, I would certainly agree with that. I actually started writing about that in 2010. And to the best of my knowledge, I was the first 
person who brought up something along that line, because what you're looking at is we assume certain things in the Electoral College. We assume based on population density that there's going to be that type of participation. And that's not always true. So if you have a a state with a smaller electoral amount and the participation is better, then why not reflect that actual participation? So I think you can have that floating of the Electoral College percentage and only require a majority in the presidential election state. I think it makes the states and local governments more engaged. It makes... Mm -hmm and local participation, extremely important. And it makes it more difficult to manipulate the elections as well. Comment Mm -hmm. on that? No, I I agree. I think when we look at, whether you look at the national popular vote movement or, you know, the current electoral college system as it is, you're going to have battleground areas and states, no matter what, you're going to have a handful of battleground states and certain segments of the country are going to be completely left out. But I would say if you had a proportional allocation system of the electors, then you're making more votes count. And at a more, like you were saying, at a more local level, all of a sudden, people who might have otherwise been in what is considered flyover country, they matter because every electoral vote suddenly counts. You know, you can't rely on getting all of California's 55, however many electoral college votes it has at this point, you can't rely on winner take all anymore where you're guaranteed all those. So now you got to start looking at states in middle America that have largely been, you know, relegated to just flyover country as, as they like to call it. So I absolutely agree that this would be the, the best approach. Yeah, the bizarre example would be, let's say only three people actually participated in California and two voted for one candidate and one voted for the other. And all of the electors would be given to the person who would actually achieve two votes in the state of California. So there's a there's a challenge to that, as there is the simplicity of saying, let's make us a pure democracy. Well, that yields to the majority. And Mm -hmm. That's not really how this country has been framed within the context of the Constitution. So I think we preserve rights if we find a thoughtful way to address the Electoral College as opposed to the simplicity of just dismissing it. Sean, in the limited amount of time we have left, where can our listeners go to engage with you, listen to your show toppling the duopoly, and read your articles and those of other writers on the Independent Voter News? The best place to go is ivn.us. You can find my podcast under the podcast subsection and under the networking area of the website. My podcast is hosted by Anchor, but it's easily accessible through IVN along with the other podcasts that the IVN network hosts and the other articles that, that writers publish for our network can be found there as well. Again, that's IVN. John Griffiths, national editor of IVN. I guess I should ask, do I still have a job? (laughs) Yeah, don't worry. You still do. Don't worry. Well, it's been fun to have you on my show, and I'm sure you'll get even with me sometime soon. (laughs) You're a great guest, Sean. You know your stuff. Thank you. And again, thank you for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you, TJ, for having me. 
This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio.